what what we were talking about last time. Uh, while I'm talking with students, I kind of watch their responses and their reactions, and that I know that with a full hour of uh, talking about it, that you remained unconvinced. And uh, in a way, it's not an issue of being convinced. Um, it's a matter of seeing what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. That's the important thing. And that yet I recognize, uh, uh, oh, by the way, have you seen the uh, recent videos with uh, Guru Viking and uh, uh, Dan Ingram? Okay. Yeah. So there has been some response to that uh, that is worthy of uh, uh, going over. And so that that last thing that I just sent you um, is kind of the essence of what the practice really is all about. In fact, you could say that uh, that story about the Buddha going out and seeing old age, sickness, death, and the monk are in fact these things in the sense of the scientist. Mm -hmm. He's there working really hard to prove uh, his, his theories, his knowledge. And um, he's probably been experimenting and working for a long time. Um, then there is, um, let's say, the bully who is out to try to prove his own self-worth to where the scientist tries to prove his theory. Uh, this is actually, in a way, is kind of like the mind is sick. We're mm. trying to prove our self-worth because we feel, in a way, worthless. Okay, not up to scratch. Uh, and then the magician is working hard uh, to prove his beliefs. Or maybe it's not the magician, maybe this would be a priest or a preacher, but in any case, a really excellent example of this is Houdini. Have you ever heard of Houdini? Okay, that's good, that's interesting. At this age, I don't expect people to have heard from about him. But back in the days of vaudeville, when radio was just coming on, but television hadn't come yet, um, there was a lot of magicians, and that uh, the very most renowned one of all was Houdini. And Houdini uh, got on a mission. I don't remember exactly what the story was, but he got on a mission uh, that wound up him investigating seances. Do you know what a seance is? Perhaps you do, perhaps you've heard of it, but not in that term. A seance is when a group of people, large or small, will gather together in a room with or without a large table that they sit around. They turn the lights down low. Some spooky music is played or someone will sing something or whatever like that to invite, uh, uh, let us say, a dead relative of one of the people in the room. And that there has been a lot of, um, uh, uh, let's say, investigation to that. And that there was a couple of women who were really, really, really excellent and nobody could catch them at anything. Until one day they walked into the room while she wasn't there and noticed one of the shoes was on the floor. Mm -hmm. One of her shoes was left on the floor. And when they went to get, pick it up, they recognized they couldn't pick it up because it was attached to the floor. And upon investigation, it was actually attached to a wire that ran under the floor. 
And that's why she could not get caught is because she was very, very slick with being able to hide what she was doing because she had it attached under the floor and nobody suspected that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a very, but back to Houdini, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but for many, many years, all of the best uh, stage magicians mm -hmm. in Las Vegas and all around would come to Las Vegas for the anniversary of Houdini to have a seance to invite him back. But for these magicians, you see, these were actually uh, high quality, the best in the world stage magicians. Some of them uh, um, work in teams. Now, I don't remember the names of them. I don't follow them much, uh, but I have uh, uh, re remembered that the famous ones were there. But for them, it was two things. One, it was a spoof. And number two, it was um, a publicity stunt. Mm -hmm. But above all things, it was not a real seance. Uh -huh. But these magicians would come and perform magic in this seance to see if they could get away with it from mm -hmm. the other mag magicians. Mm -hmm. Okay. I also offered you that Wikipedia article uh, that... Um, James Randi is the most famous from 1975. I think he has offered a million dollars for anyone who can prove anything paranormal. <laughs> and since then, there have been literally hundreds of contests set up with huge prizes. Some of them are very specific. Can you name uh, all of the parliament members that are going to be uh, elected into the Indian parliament? And if you could name all of them in advance, you get this prize. It's kind of like a, a lottery ticket. In fact, it very much is a lottery ticket, mm -hmm. except that instead of um, a numbers you're guessing, you're guessing now um, names. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Names on a list. So um, James Randi uh, and the foundation finally withdrew that million-dollar offer in 2015, according to the article, <laughs> because no one was able to do it, not one person. And so um, in going back to Houdini and this seance and trying to get dead people to come back to life is really what much of our magic is based on. Much of our bad magic is based upon the fear of death. And so it's quite um, a delicious kind of a thought to think that I can live forever if I would believe in this religion. And so people will jump on it, and they especially will jump on it in childhood, that we tend to uh, cling or hold to childhood beliefs. Now, the interesting thing is, is that these childhood beliefs we can either hold them or drop them. We can cling to them or we can still hold them irrelevant. Okay, that in fact, many people will just kind of believe in rebirth because it's just out there and it's sort of in quotes, part of the Buddhist teachings and, and whatnot like that. But mm -hmm. that they all really understand that the real goal is to come to the here now. Mm. Okay, this is what the real goal is all about, which was that fourth one in that list of the mad monk who is not trying to prove anything. He's got no place to go and nothing to do and nothing to prove because he's already satisfied. You see, in, in all of these cases, the, the magician is not satisfied with this life. He wants the next one. He's not satisfied with the way things are. They want something really special. Mm. Here's one that's very interesting is, is that according to someone recently, there are people who are still following Cal uh, Carlos Castaneda. Have you ever heard of Carlos Castaneda? Okay. Do you know that not only was he thoroughly debunked and caught, but that he admitted it? I didn't know. 
Right, because he, he admitted that he made up all of the stuff about the ally, and um, he didn't even go and take any of the herbs or the uh, uh, smoke the peace pipe or any of that. He sat in his room in Los Angeles and made all that stuff up as a novel. As a what? But it was so, as a novel. Ah, okay. As a novel. Uh-huh. And also as a research project. But people believed what he was writing. I did too. <laughs> I I really was into it. I was really into Carlos Castaneda. But I was not so disappointed when I had heard then that he was uh, debunked. Because I had already moved through that. I was into Muktananda by then. I was into the really big magic out in India. That's why I went to India. <laughs> but in fact... Uh, in this little um, expose, the scientist trying to prove his theories, um, the bully trying to prove his self-worth, and the magician trying to prove his beliefs, I've done all of those things. Mm. I've really done all of those things big time. Mm. Computer scientist. Mm. And... Um, uh, boy, was I a bully. <laughs> uh, and when in high school, at least, and in um, my 20s in that time, I was really very much into the magic. But I really wanted to know for sure. I had already given up Christianity really early in life as in childhood. Mm. I was I was just kind of finished with it uh, as a, as a really young kid. And two things happened that really impressed me like that. One was is that my mom was a nursery worker, and so when church was out and I wanted to go home, mom couldn't go home until all of the kids were gone. She couldn't just leave five or six kids there waiting for their parents to come pick them up. She had to wait for all of them. And I didn't like that very much. And then I came to understand, even at a very, very young age, that my mom cared more about the church than she did about me. Mm. I could see that just so easily. And I proved it to myself over and over and over again for me. Then when my sister came along, I had something new to prove that my mother loved my sister more than she loved me. But that put me at odds with the church. And so uh, by the time I was a little older, my dad, this is back in the 1950s when uh, sound recording and that kind of stuff was, was brand new. And my dad set it up with the radio station, with telephone lines and with recordings and all of that to have the church sermon recorded on Sunday mornings. Big deal back in the 1950s. Yeah. Now, now not so much. Internet and you've done it, right? But back then, um, <clears throat> won't go into the details that I remember, but the thing that I remember mostly was is that as soon as the search, church service started and my dad set the thing up and turned the recorder on, he would go to the local um, newsstand come beer joint. They sold beer in Oklahoma on Sunday mornings at that time, and uh, the newsstand was open, and he would go and get a beer on Sunday morning while his machine was recording the sermon. And I began to understand then that my dad didn't care much about what this church stuff was at all. Later on, I began to understand that that was his way of working, that he was actually quite shrewd because he became the best friend of every preacher because we moved from town to town as I grew up. And he became the best uh, friend of the preacher because he had this skill and he would set it up and that left him with no other duties for the church at all. Mm-hmm. So he worked He worked about five minutes to turn the machine on and then five minutes an hour later to turn it off and he was golden. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. amazing. You get it, huh? And that's the way he thought about religion. And I understood that. 
In fact, it, it was it was almost as if he was a closet atheist, and this was his closet, was a little room behind the sanctuary where this recording machine was. <laughs> okay, so this is my introduction to Christianity, and yet at the same time I was still enthralled with the fact that everyone was enthralled with magical beliefs. Mm. Everybody in town, and every town that I went to, everybody was wrapped up deep in their magical beliefs. In that part of the world, they still are. Mm-hmm. They've just got a new trophy to play with called Donald Trump, but it's the same magic, same magical beliefs of wanting something special to happen. We can see that whole concept with even with meditation when students are wanting a special meditation experience. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They want to attain something. They want to get something. In a way, they want to prove to themselves something that they can prove that they can do whatever imaginal imaginary thing that they've made up in their mind about what enlightenment is they want to prove to themselves that they can do it so in a way we can see that hey wait a minute the bully is uh in league with the magician they're both kind of trying to prove the same thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're looking for something special looking for some magic to prove that i'm immortal or at least if not immortal at least special and these endeavors are dangerous they're dangerous in the sense that we hurt ourselves doing that yeah yeah because they are reinforcing the conceit and the ego Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah very strongly Mm-hmm. So we drive ourselves mad, literally, with wanting something that we can't have. Yeah. 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 Whether it's to prove some scientific experiment that uh, even Einstein was profoundly disappointed because he and his friends could not get a unified field theory. Just couldn't do it. And the reason that they couldn't do it is because they were missing some of the formula. And the reason that they were missing some of the formula is because they could not get things hot enough. The way that it was at one time when things got formed. Okay. They just couldn't get it hot enough. There's no place in the universe left that's that hot that it was at one time when things got formed. And so back at that point, which is they think about the first trillionth of a second or so after the Big Bang, that it was still hot enough that you know things were around then and so uh when i say things i'm and around i'm talking about the fact that they were all one thing unified but now it seems great diversity but these this great diversity still holds with very 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 primitive and a very very few natural laws There are very few natural laws or natural forces. One of them is gravity, another is electromechanical. Another one is the strong and then the weak nuclear force. And underlying that is the fifth one, which is called causality, the one that the Buddha really understood well. That things have to have a cause. Right? There's got to be a, uh, let us say, a handle for the force the force by itself uh cannot be harnessed put to work or have any use value of thought or anything like that without something to to touch this this is actually what we would mean by a fulcrum in other words if everything was energy only energy and nothing but energy and there was no mass at all then We've got nothing. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you caught that joke, huh? 
if if and so if we are defying the force of gravity that means that now we're very lightweight we're not heavy and therefore we can escape the force of gravity an old joke with that is is that they say that angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly so what <laughs> 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 okay. And so that gets back then that these guys, this scientist, this uh, bully, and this uh, magician all have something to prove. Only the scientist is possible, but even he will get to the point that he fixes himself a problem that he cannot fix. Uh huh. Uh huh. Even Einstein invented a mathematical problem he could not fix. Mm-hmm. Okay. Every bully always winds up disappointed because he never, no matter how much bullying he does or anything else he tries, he never proves to himself that he's worth anything. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the magician is the one who's the most disappointed. He never gets any results. And so the first results he gets is yippee-ki-yo-ki-yay. I proved it without being able to do it again. And this is also what happens with meditators. They get themselves, they meditate themselves into some paper bag or something, and then they can't get in there anymore. Because they want it too hard. They somehow got themselves in there because they weren't looking for it. But now that they've got the idea of that memory, now they want that again. Because they want it, they're in a state of desire or in a state of dukkha, and that prevents them from getting back into that state. It's literally an issue of cause and effect. And when we see the actual cause of dukkha, wanting something we don't have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in all cases, the bully, the scientist, and the magician all want something they can't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they end up being disappointed in life. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and, and that... And the whole and the whole point of the Buddha is to wake up to that stuff. Mm-hmm. If you could get yourself into a position to where you were not full of doubt, mm-hmm. then you don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to find. Yeah, because if you're not doubting, you don't, yeah. Uh-huh. And the basic doubt that we all have, the most basic fundamental doubt is... Well, basically, will I survive? Or another way of talking about it, will I get what I need to survive? Hmm. And another way of saying it is, if I get what I, will I get what I want? Can I get it or not? Will I win that prize? Will I prove magic? Will I find a field with self-worth? I'm always wanting something. And that wanting, that desire, is what gives rise to the doubt and then the need to prove. Okay, because we're not sure we'll ever get what we need or want. But when you recognize, hey man, you've already got what you need. I mean, you're still here, you're still alive. Mm-hmm. Basically, all you need right this very minute is your next breath, and here it is. You've got it. You've got everything you need to survive right into the next few minutes. <laughs> You've got everything you need to survive this present moment. We don't need anything. And here we have been convincing ourselves all of this time that, yes, we do need something. I do need to get that computer program going, or I do need to invent that light bulb, or I do need to get that task done, the scientist. Oh, yeah. Or I, mm-hmm. We do need to do that stuff, we think. Yeah, well, actually, I just kind of like said, move like, I just move like this because 
I'm not sure if, gonna, if I'm gonna leave like the next minute. But yeah, we talk about those kinds of things. Like I gotta do something to kind of like live. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's right. But I don't know if the conditions are gonna be uh, still here for me to live in like in the next seconds. But but yeah. Well, like I was saying before, it what you actually believe is irrelevant if you allow it to not get in the way. In other words, you don't have to prove rebirth. You can believe in it. I mean, a lot of people do. There's no big problem with it. And another way for, for sure is to say that we really don't know what's going to happen after we're dead. We don't know. Nobody really knows. And because nobody knows, that means why should two people, any two people, argue over it? Because neither one of them really knows. And so if it's not even a point to argue over, it must not be very important at all. And that's the way of looking at it. Is, uh, uh, the real way of looking at it is, is that why should we take this life so seriously? Because we're not going to get out of it alive anyway. And here we are not only taking this life seriously, but the next one we have no clue about. And so it's because of this clinging. And so we can cling to this or we can cling to that out yonder we don't have yet. But the still result is, is that we're trying to prove something to ourselves or prove something to others. Wanting to try to make something special happen. Some milestone laid down, some proof. To where in fact, we don't need any proof. What we need is the eradication of that doubt. And when we're, when we're no, no longer uh, uh, driven by doubt, then we don't have to seek any answers. We can let it be irrelevant. So whether it's true or not is um, not the point. The point is, can you survive whether you know or not? The answer is, well, I can survive the next few minutes. Let's <laughs> celebrate that. Who knows what the future is going to bring? We really don't know. But we do know that if I stop trying to prove things, then my job in life is greatly reduced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing to prove anymore. So the bully can relax. He doesn't have to prove his self-worth anymore. Because he's not in doubt about it. And the scientist doesn't have to go to his lab and run a bunch of experiments anymore. Doesn't have to. Perhaps he can go into the lab and just play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, he can, without the doubt. Mm -hmm. So that's two ways that people who are really, really attached to it can, can see. One is that they can just see right through the magic into the reality of the moment. Or they can see enough of it to recognize that it's kind of irrelevant. Mm. One of the ways that that has been taught is by making a distinction between reincarnation and rebirth. You see, reincarnation is actually the me that is reincarnated, whatever the me is that people are most attached to. Normally, it's the knowing or the consciousness. And so this is what they attach to. But in Buddhism, the first important thing that students learn is is that no this consciousness this thing that you call me is temporary start looking at that investigate the fact that who you are keeps changing if it's keeps changing then how could it possibly uh uh not change and survive death when it's constantly changing anyway 
And so when we look at it from that way, we can say that, okay, maybe there is rebirth, but whatever it is is reborn is not me because what's sitting here is not me. And therefore, whatever happens to the me that is reborn is not my problem, not my job. Who he is is his job, it's his problem. And if he gets all stuck up in reincarnation, he'll have the same problems that I do. But if he can get over it, then he'll be better off than I am. Because I still believe that he is me. Where in fact, the reality is, is that even if you are reborn, it's still not a you, the same you that's in this present moment, because even that changes. But well, for example, in that case, why, for example, why worry what will happen to us tomorrow? If it's not the one time, right? Exactly. Exactly. Why worry about tomorrow? The Or, answer is, is that if you can, with wisdom, see the danger, then you can take care of it. An example like that uh, here is, is that once a year, there is the visa to be done. <laughs> okay. And over the years, it's gotten really, really easy to do. No, no, no problem at all. It's a piece of cake. But every year in the beginning, because there was so much paperwork and it was such, it became a big deal once a year, a big deal. All right. Which meant that now I'm thinking about it months in advance. Now, no problem. I've done it enough, been there, done that. Understand that it's just a formality. We can go right through the process. Not expensive, not time consuming, just something to do. But I do it because it would be very dangerous to not do that, to say, hey, I'm a big dude now. I'm a bully and I'm going to bully the immigration people by not getting a new visa next year and see what they do about it. <laughs> no, I don't have to prove that. I understand what's going on. And so um, that answers kind of that question. Yes, there are activities. I, I would not ever recommend to anyone To, for them to make a big lifestyle change, such as quitting a job or something. Though most of the students do have that question on their mind about, do I stay here or do I go? And my always point come back to it is, is that a job is only a job because you don't like it, but you do it anyway. That's what the word work means. But if you like what you're doing, then it doesn't matter what you're doing. The fact is, is that in this moment, you like what's happening. And so if I can like getting the papers together and like going and getting the visa, then <laughs> what's the problem? There's no issue, no trouble. It's when I don't like going to get the visa, Part of the reason that I don't like it is because the doubt that I'm not sure about all the paperwork and everything. But once I know the procedure down pat, I know exactly what to do. Then now it's it's a dance. I know the routine. I, I, I it took many years to learn those dance steps. But now that I know it every once a year, When that music, when that bell rings, I can hop up and I can do that little dance. <laughs> so yes, that's the whole way is, is that can we enjoy what we're doing in this present moment rather than tr trying to get something special, to pine for something. To what? To, to pine for something, to want something, to, ling to long for something. That in fact, if, if people long for something long enough, they will uh, eventually get to the point of thinking that they're not going to get it. And that's when they go into despair that, oh, poor me, I'll never get what I want. And they become mm. defeated, yeah. depressed. If they aren't getting it right, like maybe in the time they expected to get it or maybe also because mm -hmm. they think about it too much maybe, i don't know <laughs> maybe okay 
Now, you can understand that basically everyone who comes to Buddhism comes to Buddhism as a combination of these three things. We come, to, we come as the scientist, as the bully, and as the magician. And everyone brings to Buddhism when they come to it, they bring magical thinking. And that they're trying to prove their self-worth. And that they're trying to get the job done. Trying to prove that they can do it. Okay, so um, then the question is, and this is actually part of the discussion that um, uh, Dan and I were having, but we were, <laughs> let us say, there was an undercurrent under there, an unspoken thing that was that was really going on. And that was is that within this group of people that come to Buddhism, some of them will be fairly easy to pop out of the mundane into the super mundane mindset. Yeah, I got I, 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 so I got that. <laughs> and that some of the people are going to be very slow and very reluctant to pop out of the mundane mindset because they still cling to and want magic. They still want to prove something big to themselves rather than coming out into the super mundane of, hey, man, you've already got what you wanted. You worked too hard already. Why do you continue to try to prove something that you already deep inside, you know that you can't prove it? But you don't have to go into despair. It, it's more like the way that uh, the difference between the way that dogs treat a, a dog carcass and the way that humans treat a human carcass. If you walk, run across a dead human, all kinds of things are going to happen, including you're going to call authorities, there's going to be a funeral, somebody's going to dress the body up, all kinds of stuff. When the dog goes by and sees the carcass of a dead dog, maybe it's even one that's in his pack, he's going to sniff it, he's going to snort that out breath, and he's going to walk off. Okay, and so we can, in fact, do that same thing with the carcass of our belief system. We can either uh, treat it like it's a very valuable carcass, like humans treat dead bodies, or we can treat the carcass of our belief system like the dogs do. Take a big whiff of that, reckon I don't need this. <laughs> <laughs> and just boogie on down the road. But many people can't do that, even though they have proven to themselves over and over and over again that they're not going to have any magic. Still they long for it. Still they want it. Still they want to associate with those who believe in those things, and they can talk themselves into it and talk themselves up and hope for all kinds of things, but ultimately, they haven't come out of suffering. They're still wanting something they don't have. This is how I see it. That these, try, these trying to prove things, <laughs> even though they might be provable or they might not be provable, the thing is that as you said, people who do that don't have what they want, and what they want is happiness, isn't it? Feel good. Mm -hmm. So, the scientist thinks that if he can do that experiment, he'll be happy. The bully thinks that if he bullies enough people, he'll feel uh, successful and worthy of himself. Only and the magician thinks that if he can just prove one time that magic exists, that he'll be happy and okay. The fact is, you can be unhappy and okay without having to prove anything. Yes. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the real teaching of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard lesson to get across to those who say, well, yeah, but what about ism? 
And they'll go and, and the mind starts up again in the sense of, yeah, but what about I've got to have a job? I've got I got to eat. <laughs> OK, or the what about ism of, yeah, but I've got to get my diploma. I've got to finish that education. I've got to get that degree. I've got to uh, uh, finish that book I'm writing. I've got to get that thing. You know, there's the bully in there wanting to get their own self-worth. Mm -hmm. And then there's the clowns like me that go from Kalash Kastanana to Muktananda to Sachi Sai Baba. I've been to some of the best in the world. <laughs> and I recognize that it didn't matter what they were doing. The fact is, is that all of these people around them wanted something they didn't have. And watching a Swami do it and you can't do it is not much consolation. Well, it depends how you see it. How, how well, you, how some of them see it with the, with the thing, if the Swami can do it, so can I. Or if the Swami can see it and I'm really attached to the Swami, then it's me that's doing it because I am the Swami anyway. <laughs> he is my Swami. Or you can see it with wisdom or just like, oh. Mm -hmm. oh. Well, that's how we attach to it, my church or my religion. So that the, if it's my religion, then any place, any place in that religion that there's any magic, then it's my magic because that's my religion. I own it. It is me. Problem is, anytime that religion has any problem, then I have to feel bad too because it's my, my religion. <laughs> me. Big problem. Mm -hmm. And you can see that easy, uh, very easy in, in uh, political parties, that when people get attached to one political party or another, then every time that political party has something go up, me goes up with it. And every time the political party goes down, me goes down, too. Well, guess what? Every election is a mixture of wins and losses for a big political party. Uh -huh. Which means that there is plenty of opportunity for everyone to feel bad. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Even those who win is not a good enough win. I don't, we didn't get enough housing seats. You know? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> and so that's the attachment to political parties, but, but attaching to uh, not just political parties, but ideas or belief systems. The way things should be is another way that we get really attached so that we create a thicket of views. Mm -hmm. And so that thicket of views is very, very difficult for, for some people to let go of. And they begin to think that their thicket of views is more important to them than their own happiness. When in fact, all they would have to do is ignore the thicket of views and sit down and be happy. Yes. <laughs> but the problem with most people is uh, who don't have any meditation skills is that it's hard for them to sit down and be happy. The mind wants to immediately jump in back into that thicket of views. And so what we have to do is understand the distinction between wholesome thought and unwholesome thought to come out of that thicket of views and sit down and be happy instead. Mm. And one of the ways we can see those uh, that ticket of views is not uh, uh, worthwhile, that is not wholesome, is not whether it's true or not, but it's the way that I attach to it. Doesn't matter what particular politician is the very best politician. The issue is do I attach to him or not? So that everything that good happens to him happens to me and everything bad happens to him happens to me. That's the issue. To not get attached to the good. To not get attached to the ideal. Mm. Because we're not going to get the ideal and the very good very often. We have to put up with reality. 
which is actually another way of talking about fate. But if we can be very content and very happy with what our fate is, what's happening right now is your fate. This is it. And if you can enjoy that, then we don't need to worry about the future. We don't need to prove anything. We don't have to have an agenda. You just enjoy the moment. And the more you practice doing that, the better at it you'll get. So that you have fewer and fewer thoughts of longing and hoping and wanting magic or uh, validation or uh, getting the job done. And you spend more and more time. In, hey, I've already got all the proof I need. No more doubts. Everything is okay. Everything is easy. And so we have to keep putting those thoughts in and putting those thoughts in until they are the ones that kind of run the house rather than the thoughts, the thoughts of I've got to prove this and I've got to prove that. I see that that's a lot of work in my case. I've got to do it. <laughs> but it's worthwhile. With well, I'm glad you like that little poem. That's good, isn't it? I think that that helps you to understand that um, uh, it's it's not that we stand there and uh, beat the magician with a bludgeon that doesn't exist any more than his magic exists. We don't have to uh, um, uh, ridicule the magician, nor do we have to ridicule the bully. Nor do we have to ridicule the scientist. We can just say, see you later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just walk away because we know that, in fact, most people will cling to their magic. They will cling to their views. And that... Um, the, the marvelous part actually is, is that the alternate is actually becoming available. Most people didn't even know they ever had a choice. So now you're beginning to understand that there is a choice in there. And that's great. I'm glad that we've had this talk because now you understand things a, a bit better. But it does take some repetition. That's why music is the way that it is. The way, the, part of the reason humans enjoy music is because it's very repetitious. That's also the thing that we like about poetry is because it keeps rhyming, it keeps coming back home. Just like Beethoven, he was a master at repetition. He had a little short phrase and he just keeps repeating it over and over and over and over and over again. So uh, like the, uh, uh, the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Sympathy, it's just ground into the minds of every human being on the planet. Da 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 da. Only two notes. One of them. Da 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 da. And then the whole symphony. Nothing but that. Da 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 Same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. Hundreds and thousands of times in that symphony, those three, those two notes are played over and over and over again. Da 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 da. Da 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 da. But it's just the same thing repeated over and over and over again. It's just so magnificent the way that he's done that. That's also the Dhamma. There's only two notes. There's only two notes in the Dhamma. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And we repeat the dukkha, da-da-da, over and over and over again. And now we're going to add the resolution sound, da-da-da-da, and bring it home to rest so that it can stay there. But we have to keep repeating this over and over and over and over again. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Da-da-da-da. It's the repetition. Now, guess what? 
this is how children believe in lies also is because the lies keep getting repeated over and over and over again and there's a pattern set up yeah and so that's how the mind has this sequence of what they call samsara it's the same old stuff over and over and over again repeated over and over and over again and to now we're going to change our tune We're not going to be a Johnny One Note anymore. Now we're going to have that resolution tone. We don't have to just say Duka, 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 Duka. Now we can say Duka, Naroda. Ouch. Stop. Resolved. Uh, the tension is over. Nothing more to prove. But we have to hear that so many times over and over and over again until we finally get it. Why? Because we're so wrapped up in that thicket of views, all of those lies that we've been telling ourselves for all of these years. And so that's the way our neural network is built. It's built in this thicket of views. So we have to keep reminding ourselves, hey, we've only got two notes to play. And there's nothing to prove. So this is actually, when I'm talking about this, this is Anapanasati practice. This is it. To wake up and to change that thicket of views, to pull that stuff out, and to come back and say, everything's okay. Everything is fine. And keep repeating that. Nourishing yourself. Telling you nothing to prove, nothing to, no place to go, nothing to do, everything's okay. Let me just enjoy this moment. Be here now. And then those thicket of views are not important anymore. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether any of them are true or not. Whether it was true or not, it's not important. The important is, are you attached to it? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the suffering. <laughs> exactly, exactly. This has been a delightful talk. I really enjoyed this, and I'm really glad to see you smiling now and nodding your head and saying, yeah, finally you got it. You got it this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big, big load off the chest, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, let yourself be free from that doubt that you don't really have to prove anything anymore. Everybody around you can believe anything they want to believe, and you don't have to buy it or sell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks. We'll see you. Yeah. Thanks for calling. This has been a really, really delicious talk. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> Great, great. See you. See you.